0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Thursday's edition of C.B. Bowman Live. And you know, on Thursdays, we talk about workplace equality and equity. And today we have a fantastic guest. Richard will introduce himself and tell you all about himself. Oh, my God. And he has an amazing book that he has written. I'm so excited to talk about it. Richard. Tell us about yourself.
1: Thank you, C.B. I'm a professor at Case Western Reserve University. I'm actually a distinguished university professor. I'm in departments of organizational behavior and psychology, cognitive science. I've been studying uh, people and how people change as a psychologist since 1967. Uh, That was when I, I was at MIT and I left the aerospace field I got my degree in aeronautics and astronautics, and I was <clears throat> I was actually designing um, control systems and in interplanetary vehicles, but I ran out of money, went out and worked in the field for a while, came back, <clears throat> finished the degree, but decided to change fields. And through the intervention of a few people like Dave Kolb and Ed Schein and a few others, Dave McClellan, they convinced me to go to graduate school, helped me get into a PhD program at Harvard, and i uh, been in the psychology field since, but it was the curiosity about why most managers don't help their subordinates that got me thinking about it even when I was still an engineer. Since then, I've written, let's see, over 200 articles in uh, academic settings, then I don't know, 50 or 75 in practitioner pieces, nine books. There are over a 1,300,000 people enrolled in one of my two MOOCs. Um, and <clears throat> I'm proud to say that uh, of my nine books, one, uh, four of them are written for normal people, not academic researchers. But <laughs> and the 2002 book with Dan Goldman and Annie McKee was an international bestseller, so that was cool. And what was um, the name that one,
0: what was the name? Primal that
1: one? Leadership.
0: Primal
1: Leadership. It's really about the story about how emotional intelligence fits into leadership, based on decades of research then finally after three decades of doing fmri studies and hormonal studies as well as longitudinal behavior studies behavior change studies professors melvin smith and ellen van osten who are close friends and colleagues and i published a book from hbr last year called helping people change which is based on research on our evidence as to what's a more effective way to help people want to learn and change
0: so First of all, I want to get because I, and I purposely didn't say it because I know I'm going to mess it up. The pronunciation of your last name.
1: My parents were immigrants from Greece, and when my father hit Ellis Island, his name was Kyriakos Eleftherios Voyatzis. So, and he couldn't speak English. This is 1938, and <clears throat> he spelled he said it, and the person behind the desk on Ellis Island spelled it phonetically, so it actually. Is phonetic boy Let at this.
0: It. Let me try boy at to Z Well,
1: it's there's nothing between the t and the z, so that's it's boy at zis.
0: Boy at zis. Right. I love it. Let me write it. Try to write it. Boy at this This. Okay.
1: My middle so name I, is I left Edius. If you want to call me Left Edius, that's okay.
0: No, I think <laughs> I'll stick with boy at t- <laughs> 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 Dr. Boyak is Okay. So now the next question I want to ask you before we get into some more details. And by the way, Greece is my favorite country because that's where I was first proposed to. So.
1: Wow. W- was that in your first marriage?
0: <laughs> no, I didn't get married. I just said, thank you very much. For
1: oh, that. I see. Got
0: it. <laughs> see. The hills. <laughs>
1: Being picky, huh? <laughs> yeah,
0: and my second proposal was in Istanbul.
1: <laughs> wow! So you specialize in the in the kind of Mediterraneans, huh?
0: Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and I finally picked one. January, uh, July fourth, I got married, and he's Italian, and I proposed to him.
1: <laughs> okay, well, <clears throat> so all that's left for future marriages uh, are Spain and Portugal. Yeah, exactly. Nevertheless, egypt you know tunisia right
0: i let him know that every day
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah watch out or (laughs) (laughs)
0: exactly (laughs) so dr boyazi um you You call me
1: richard it's a lot easier
0: oh but i love your last name i'm you know i'm highly dyslexic and so i'm trying to build Uh, my right ability to pronounce different things um so which is why i speak very plain english right um what can you just tell us what makes a person a distinguished professor oh
1: and, and in most universities it's not the same in every university but case western reserve being what's called an r1 top research university the practice is that a distinguished university professor is an award given to in our case, the top 1% of the faculty, of all the faculty at the university. And it distinguishes, and usually it's given because the person has done a lot of both research and distinguished themselves in research in multiple fields and in teaching in a lot of different areas and in service and leadership.
0: Wow. So can you tell us, give us a list of the areas you teach in and give us a list of your service and leadership.
1: Sure. Most of my courses are about change. uh, And the typical title of most of my courses is Leading Change. And uh, what happens is, so one course I teach is for the Masters of Positive OD. Average age about 40, 42. People fly in from different countries a few times during the year. And I teach the course on, I follow Melvin Smith's course on emotional intelligence. And I really focus on dyadic relationships. I use coaching and coaching with compassion as a model to really represent all types of helping, whether as a parent or manager, physician, nurse, or coach. And get people to study the psychophysiology of it all and how to do it better. And then to analyze change at all different levels from teams all the way up to country change. And I have my graduate students in small teams focus on countries or communities or organizations that have changed well and those that have failed at it. And I do a version of that course for the executive MBAs, which are about 40 years old. In that particular program, there are a lot of physicians from different hospitals around the US. Again, they fly in, in that case, once every five weeks or so. And then in the executive doctorate, which are folks around 50, usually in their 50s, 40s, late 40s, early 50s. They fly in from different countries uh, three times a semester. And I'm teaching a course on leading change, which starts with, because in that program, they don't get Melvin Smith's course. So I actually have them start by building a personal vision. And then we go on to the coaching with compassion and then analyzing change at all these different levels. Those are the three courses I teach now. And I've been teaching for about the past 14 years. Um,
0: Okay. And then,
1: you know, I do some of the work to help out in our executive education—the programs that uh, we do for companies or governments or nonprofits uh, mm-hmm. that are custom and then open enrollments—and um, and then outside of school, I've also been on the faculty of Esade in Barcelona for 20 years. So I usually go there um, once a semester, give some talks. Mostly, it's really doing research with other faculty and doctoral students. And I give talks at a lot of other universities, but also University of Venezia. I have good friends, ALBA in Greece, of course, London Business School and uh, University of uh, Liverpool and all sorts of schools. But I also give a lot of talks to um, associations and now a lot of healthcare, large healthcare organizations, hospitals and companies. Mm-hmm. And then in my writing, um, I still am active in collecting data and doing research on either the role of emotional intelligence, competencies, or how to develop them or um, coaching and really trying to figure out, um, because I believe coaching works, but I also have plenty of data to show that most forms of helping don't work that well. So even among coaches and I'm on one of the ICF boards, so I'm, I'm embedded in the coaching field, but I think there's a lot that we do in coaching um, that may or may not make people feel good. But then again, you know, I think showed back in the 60s that if people were on the waiting list for psychotherapy after a year, they improved as much as the people who got psychotherapy. So I, I always look at any helping a relationship, including coaching, with a certain degree of humility and say, look, until we're really clear from research, well done research, that not only does it work, but under what conditions does it work and what's the best way to go about it? So it was with that kind of open curiosity about it that we've discovered a bunch of things that a lot of people do in coaching that I think if they tweaked it a bit, they could be a lot more effective.
0: You know, I'm going to put you on the spot right now, (laughs) which I'm famous for. Um, but I'm going to reach out to you after this call in June, my association for coaches, which is very different from ICF with all due respect to Magda and ICF. I love, you know, her, um, my association is the association of corporate executive coaches. And we have a different philosophy in coaching. And, um, we believe that when you're at that master level, you're actually an enterprise-wide business partner with your client. And under that umbrella, we like for you to have in your portfolio, experience and expertise in coaching, counseling, um, everything and know which is the most appropriate for your client and when to refer a client to the right person.
1: Because as your association, explains and stands for this. I remember when I was running to two consulting companies for 11 years and we had about a hundred PhDs in one and fewer PhDs, but a lot of MBAs in the other, the market research company. Um, and I ended up being a consultant to slash coach to a number of CEOs of fortune 500 companies. And once you're at that level, um, it's very hard to separate out coaching from consulting, from even counseling because the, the client wants all. I mean, yes. those, are, those are artificial distinctions. Um, yes. and I, I don't, I can't remember if I've given any talks for the AOCE, but I have for the association of coaching, which I think is based in London. Yes, um, it is. And then the, um, CCCE that does the BCC coaching thing. So anyway.
0: yes. Yeah.
1: But I'm glad to hear that because I think one of the issues is as humans, we're holistic. You know, it's like when people, when people say, well, I separate out my work life from my personal life. My answer is bull, right? First of all, you're being delusional. You can't. Secondly, if you think you separate it, you're putting a lot of psychic energy into compartmentalizing yourself and you're wasting energy. Absolutely.
0: because emotionally
1: it all bleeds into one another
0: so richard i'm going to ask you to be a speaker at our conference oh sure okay um and it takes place in may and june by zoom this year so well that
1: makes it easier for me because i I mean i got to say one of the benefits of this COVID crisis is i don't have to get on planes once a week um i mean even though my job is in cleveland i only teach one day a month pre-covid So, and most of my students come from other countries. So I end up doing most of my work on Zoom anyway. Yes. Um, And so I now live in Boston. That's the picture from my condo uh, behind me of the Charles River and MIT, which I pray to every morning. Uh, So, but but I think um, uh, for those of us, you know this because you're a speaker, over the past 20 years, uh, air travel and travel has started to chew up more and more hours. It's and ridiculous. what used to be an overnight trip, you know, fly somewhere, give a speech, come back um all of a sudden now is a two and a half day event yeah. with a lot of stress and I, so yeah my I, my I, internist gave me a green light in July when for the first time in something like 50 years, I had normal blood pressure <laughs> <laughs> with, with my meds, but still <laughs> i was I was running high even with my meds, you know so
0: well, but anyway, know, yeah, always, so yeah, let me know. Uh, i will i will i've always been a proponent of coaching by zoom or online or by phone and and you know coaches thought i was crazy they said our clients won't go for it i'm a covid survivor and i have to tell you Ah, that is one of the best things that came out of covid if there was a light at all that is it and so now Yeah, I
1: actually think there have been several. One is what I was saying is the reduction in stress for those of us who don't have to travel. The second is people talked with their family members a lot more. Yes. And I know a lot of folks who had conversations with their adolescent children that they never would have had before. Um, The third is, you know, I did my first MOOC back in 2013, and being a many decade adversary to online learning, I learned something very important when, in the first time we ran this eight-week course, 110,000 people enrolled. And then as I did the course more and more, and it's now, like I said, over a million three have been participating, <clears throat> I discovered that there is a lot of learning that adults want to do, lifelong learners, but it tends People want to tend to get it in smaller doses. Yes, we do. And and they want it, and you want it more convenient. Yes. So I think that for a lot of, I've been advocating for faculty to use asynchronous and synchronous, as well as face-to-face processes with graduate students, even with undergraduates. Mm -hmm. And now, because of the COVID, faculty have been forced to explore at least the synchronous. So yes. I think we're going to see an upgrading in the re- learning retention and the interest level of a lot of collegiate experiences as a result of this.
0: That is that is great to know. And yeah. and I'm looking forward to the MOOC, I love it, but there's one missing component to me and that is accountability. <laughs> I sign up for a program and I go, okay, I'm gonna do this and then something else in the way. So I have to have something a little right. bit more to yeah. make accountable to attend those classes. Well, and
1: that's, that's why I think that if they're synchronous, and the asynchronous ones like the MOOCs, I mean, m- my MOOCs all have 10 and a half minute videos, you know, 24 mm-hmm. and 115 and the other, and it's all designed so that people could do it on their phone or on their laptop, you know, riding a bus or the train to work. Uh, but when you do a synchronous course where you want people to be involved what it means is you have to use this interactive technology more effectively so that people are involved
0: yes absolutely i see we've got (laughs) julie says preach me too (laughs) um we've got a lot of people that are writing in so you're triggering a lot of conversation um but i I want to uh, the people that are writing in keep writing in um, I'll try to leave some time to come back. Uh, people are saying, glad to hear you say that, Richard, at various points. We've got Jordan who's listening in and said, I would add, it's a lot of gray area between coaching counselor. Uh, we talked about this yesterday um, and he would love to hear you speak at the ACEC conference. That's wonderful. I'm, I'm gonna snag Richard, so don't worry. <laughs> but, Great. <laughs> We have to get to the to the theme of this program. Right. Workplace equality and equity. So here's my question to you. Um, you've done a lot on change, but actually, you know what? I want to take a little detour, another detour. Richard, did you yeah. hear Amanda Gordon's presentation yesterday? The uh,
1: no, but I heard a lot about it, and I do want to listen to it.
0: I I'll, I'll have
1: to attach a, a YouTube of it or something.
0: Well, I, I just, your link to me, I just posted it this morning. Oh, great. Okay. And I want to tell you, I write poetry. And when I heard, and I was so glad that last year on uh, America's Got Talent, somebody won for the written word, which we now wow. call poetry, right? Yeah. When I heard this young 20-year-old speak, I didn't know whether to cry, smile. All I could tell you is that my heartbeat went up 100%. She just, she represents our future and boy, are we in for a good one. I'm looking
1: forward to it. I'm looking forward to
0: it. Oh my God, you must, you must. Okay, Jordan says it brought tears tears to his eyes and it's not typical for me. I think it did that for everybody. Just so proud to be in a world which allows her to speak that way. Um, Okay, so let's talk about workplace equality and equity. And I might ask you some tough questions, but I know you could deal with it.
1: I signed up for it.
0: (laughs) Okay, great. All right, your book on change, how does that help? Or what models can you advise for organizations who want to start a and I program.
1: Sure. Let me start by asking you a question. Um, when you're involved in D, E and I programs, why are you doing it?
0: So, okay, you're gonna, you're gonna tear me up. Um, when I was a young kid, uh, I worked in the corporate world for Fortune 500 companies, two of which I had to sue for race discrimination and work there at the same time. And so, yeah,
1: the scars,
0: the, um, the experience that did not break me. And I always said to myself, you're going through this pain for the sake of the generation coming next. Okay. And so it's now time for me to say a little bit more than that. So I started a company called WE, which is Workplace Equality and Equity. And its focus is to support organizations and individuals, specifically coaches and organizations who want to change the workplace environment so that it is more, equitable. And there's a lot more equality. And our platform is that we don't do this, we don't do this training by making people feel guilty. We do experience based training where it says whatever is on your mind is okay. Let's come together and discuss it because that's the only way change is going to happen.
1: Okay, so you answered my second question, which is when you and, and certainly the experiences that you talk about are both disgusting, but also a sign of your courage and and fortitude um, and your quest, which I'm sure existed even before that towards fairness and, yeah. and equity in, in that sense. Um,
0: I'm, I'm actually a soldier's daughter, which you can see.
1: Okay. So in yeah. that case, you know, you've been a part of a system that has um, both wrestled with and, at times, led uh, diversity inclusiveness efforts in all organizations. Um, Still wrestling with it, but nonetheless. The the second question would have been something you actually already answered, which is, well, how do you think you can go about it? And your platform already recognizes what we've proven neurologically and hormonally, which is that when you want to help someone change or learn something, you don't start by telling them what they should do. In fact, Melvin Smith and I started talking about this comparison physiologically in 2003, and we ended up calling the approach that we have found really works to help people open up to new ideas and change and sustain the effort, we call it coaching with compassion. But well, we use coaching with a small c, so it can apply to any helping, a parent, a, a physician, a nurse, an executive, a therapist, coaching with compassion. And the reason we called it that, we're using more of a Confucian interpretation of compassion, of openness to others, is we think most of the time when people try to help someone, they use coaching for compliance. Hmm. that I'm trying to get you to do what I want you to do. And even if it's well-intended, CB, how does a person feel like you've been exposed to a coaching bully? So what we have found is that the intricacies of how to engage this, in my intentional change theory, it's called the positive emotional attractor state, and you have the negative, you need both. One's thriving, one's surviving, both neurologically and hormonally and, and affectively, you need both, but you have to start efforts to change in the positive emotional attractor. Why? Because if you go into the negative, you set off the stress response, which closes us down. Literally, it calls, it, it. moves our peripheral vision from 180 degrees down to 30 in the research, it, and it closes us cognitively, as well as shutting off our immune system. But what happens is, as soon as And this is one of my arguments with a lot of the coaching certification groups. They say, you have to maintain the person's, the client's presenting problem as the context for your coaching conversation. I think that's all absolute bull. I mean, that's like me feeling sick, going on the internet, diagnosing my malady, going to my internist, and oh, and then going on the internet and saying what medicine I need, (laughs) going to my internist and say, okay, here's what I have. And this is the medicine I need, write the script. Right. And if if, if my internist writes that script, he should be let fired and let yes. go from the profession. Yes.
0: And by the What's way, the- we do know we do know a couple of rock stars, musicians who did that. And sadly, they're not here anymore. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. and, and the fact is
1: that <clears throat> my point is the client's presenting problem is of course relevant to the conversation. But if you set it as the context for what you're talking about, you've put everything into a very narrow spectrum of problem-solving. and We now have the data to show that when you focus on metrics, analytics, or problem-solving, you activate a part of the brain called the analytic network. Uh, The label is that of Professor Tony Jack, uh, who's a neuroimaging specialist at Case Western Reserve and a psychologist and a philosopher, but, but he, he's been able to show that this, he calls it the analytic network, which is a better name than the task positive network. We need it. We need it to solve problems. But when you do that, it suppresses this other important network called the default mode network technically, but Tony likes to call it the empathic network. I think it's a better name and the empathic network, which is different parts of your brain ends up being the network you have to activate to be open to new ideas or people, even people who are different than you are. So at the heart of it, anything we do that creates more focus actually suppresses the ability to be open, especially to other people and to new ideas. So when we think about change, it's really amped up to when we think about change around diversity or inclusiveness. Because now, if I have to be open to an idea of relating to another human being who doesn't look like me or doesn't sound like me or has a different background, I need the empathic network in the brain, not the analytic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In coaching or in any helping, you need both, like in managing. You want to use analytics and you want to use empathy and the empathic network. But the question is, what do you start with? And that's where, that's where your platform of your practice is exactly what we've found. If you start with a person's dream or sense of purpose, not goals, the big picture, if you start with a caring relationship, which we call a resident relationship, you actually activate things we are technically, you know, the empathic network, the parasympathetic nervous system, positive affect things, and what I call the positive emotional attractor. And that enable that activates all these parts of the brain and the body to open you up. I mean, there was even a study done on one of the dimensions of my thing of parasympathetic versus sympathetic, which is what I call renewal versus stress. And by the way, the parasympathetic or renewal aspects are the only antidote to stress. You You can't... You could try to lower stress, but that's not going to help you. What you have to do is introduce more of these moments that allow you to rebuild your body and mind and spirit. Well, one of the hormonal indicators of when you're in a stress episode is secretion of epinephrine. It's an endocrine. And one of the indicators in the parasympathetic or the renewal is secretion of oxytocin, primarily in women. Well, a group of psychologists did a study in England in which they used nasal sprays of epinephrine or oxytocin, and they showed people um, photographs of acquaintances. Not friends, not close friends, but acquaintances, you know, like Facebook friends kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And when people were under the stress or epinephrine, uh, they looked at a picture, and the first thing they said was, well, this person's Pakistani. This person's Caribbean African. This person um, is Irish. When they had it under the oxytocin spray, which is the parasympathetic, the first thing they said was, This person has a great sense of humor. This person's a good dancer. This person is really good to have when you're meeting new people. Yes. And it was amazing how clear the difference is between looking at someone and making attributed characteristics versus looking at someone and appreciating who they are individually. So when you start to raise the question of diversity, and of course, we all, everywhere in the world, we have diversity issues. And without diversity, we die. Because diversity, either for the major and important reason of social justice, of equality for all, and or for the fact that we need diversity of ideas to continue to adapt individually or in families or organizations or countries. But the problem is diversity is almost always threatened by the people in power. And having spent a lot of time in my graduate school days and then afterwards studying a lot of cultures of the world and you know, like you, I travel around the world a lot giving speeches and all that, I mean, It becomes very clear that um, the issue of uh, the biggest threat to diversity is not any one particular race. It ends up being whatever race or group is in dominant power. So, yes, in America it's whites, but in Nigeria it's the Yoruba tribe because they hold the most dominant positions. Ask an Igbo you know, how it is to get, a, get around there or Hausa. In uh, Kenya, it's the Kukuyu. In China, it's the Han, the Han ethnic group. Um, so what we find is that there are very visible differences in terms of races and then, of course, ethnicities, very clear around gender. And now, even clearer when you look at the full spectrum of gender identification, and i think the one that is under acknowledged right now but is a major source of misunderstanding and not being fair is uh social class issues uh <laughs> jennifer borton who's a philosopher at princeton and uh hispanic immigrant herself wrote a magnificent book um and it was it's called um on the way up, don't lose your way, or something close to that. <laughs> um, and uh, I, it's the first time I've seen in the last 30, 50 years, somebody talking about the social class issues in this country, in the U.S. Uh, people are very, very aware of them in a lot of other countries because, you know, at any rate. So the point, I'm getting drifting too far to go back to it, if you wanna help somebody be open to learning or change, you have to start in the positive emotional attractor. And I would contend, I mean, I, I was in the movement in Boston and in started working in 67, working with Roxbury Businessmen's Association and, and involved in a lot of the efforts with a bunch of my classmates from Harvard and some of the fo- uh, faculty at MIT to try to do programs. And then my company, my former company, did a lot of programs with the SBA for minority business people in the early and mid-70s throughout the U.S. And what becomes very, very clear is that if what we want to do is help people of differences come together and be able to work and live and enjoy each other, we have to, as you said, not start in the negative emotional attractor. And most diversity programs do that. They're based on venting somebody's anger, which is righteous. I mean, there are a lot of things that people should feel angry about from their own experiences, but if that's your strategy for trying to get somebody else to change, then be clear, you know, what you're doing is using vomiting and revenge, you're not using inducing change and learning so that it's through the more positive and inducing the more positive parts, open parts of your hormonal system and your brain, your neural network, that you actually have an opening. Then there are times to introduce some of the negative. I'm not saying you, you can't do anything negative, yeah. But, yeah. but a part of it is exactly what you said uh, your platform is, but I, and I happen to think it works. It's the key for any learning and change. But it becomes very visible uh, when you look at places where we're looking for equity and social justice, because the tendency of uh, folks championing those efforts, I think, is very often to, because they've been feeling the dregs and the uh, the oppression and repression of it. They've been feeling it for so long that when they finally get a chance to do something, they're blasting away. Um, But that's really what we've been studying and finding. And that's what our recent book is about is how do you use this approach of coaching with compassion, you know, with, you know, and we have stories of physicians and executives and people dealing with their teenage children and and all of these kinds of things, uh, because it's a lot more enlightening and effective.
0: It's interesting, I'm going to swing out and then swing back in um i had a conversation yesterday with uh teresa russell my friend teresa uh who present that you know she's with the uh, nasdaq she's uh, director of the nasdaq um
1: oh yeah and- my son my son is a pr executive at nasdaq right oh really he's, he's, he's talked about really enjoying meetings with her right
0: well, so okay through mg100 you've introduced your son to her because she's a member of mg100
1: uh no he works for nasdaq
0: oh yes but does he has oh he in in his work he's met her yeah. well yeah. she's also a member of mg100
1: ah got it
0: so um so she presented last week to a group of pr and uh marketing people which i was part of about what's going on in our country and Theresa is a Republican. I'm a staunch Democrat. My husband is a staunch Republican. And I was so impressed with this woman because she was able to bring, she was able to unite in a way that I hadn't heard before. And she called me up and she said, CB, how do you think I did? And I said, I was so proud. I was so excited. I was so honored to be your friend because what you did is she used a new term. I said to her, you presented on a hyphen. She said, what? (laughs) And I said, what you did is you presented data and facts without blame. And so it really allowed people, regardless of the platform that they support, democratic, republican, liberal, to listen to you and to take what they needed from the conversation. I said, that was just genius. And so it ties back to what you're saying now is that she she touched the uh, human emotional side right. without right. my feeling guilty being a Democrat, yeah. this was before the election um, of, um, not before the election, before the the inauguration
1: inauguration, right
0: right? um and i said to my husband last night i said you know the way you present your arguments for the republican party you need to take a few pages from Teresa. because if you want me to listen you're approaching it all wrong (laughs) no i
1: think i i think that's very evident um and part of it is um you know i am a a scholar of leadership. I do do research and write about leadership. And there is nothing more difficult to talk about, even among my 40 and 50-year-old students in my classes, than the issue of politics. Yes. Um, Part of the reason is that uh, our minds, our brains are open looped in the sense that we're open to picking up the emotions of people around us. And unless you're on the uh, autism spectrum disorder, or the spectrum rather, you're going to pick this up. And yeah. and Joseph Ledoux showed you're picking it up in 8 to 40 thousandths of a second. So it's deeply unconscious what people are feeling. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that if you have an emotional disposition to like someone, you give them what Ed Hollander, a former professor at uh, Bernard Baruch and a mentor of mine decades, many decades ago, called in the late 50s idiosyncrasy credit. Now, I benefit from this because I'm a leadership scholar and I'm politically a moderate, which has the odd distinction of nobody trusts me, of all of my <laughs> friends, because, and, and I honestly, I got into an argument with one of my closest friends uh, a few years ago, and I, I finally, and he said, well, everybody says they're a moderate, but they're not. I said, and I went back and I, and I went, the next lunch I had, I said, Mike, I've checked my voting record since I started voting. And let me just limit it to national elections. 40% of the time I voted for Republicans, 40% of the time I voted for Democrats, and 20% of the time I voted for independents. I said, I think that qualifies me for a moderate. (laughs) Now, what that means is when I look at an election, I'm a little more sensitive to what happens when people do this idiosyncrasy credit. And I remember watching the george W. Bush John Kerry election and you know coming from Boston and having known about lieutenant Kerry you know when I was teaching graduate students in the uh, late 60s early 70s who were also in the vets against uh, the war movement uh, i I remember a bunch of stuff so here I have this view that you could never have found two candidates for president who were more alike. (laughs) and Despite what everybody liked in Europe to say, they had almost identical IQ scores from published tests that they took. Uh, One was fluent in Spanish, the other in French. They both went to Ivy League schools. They both grew up quite uh, well-to-do. And honestly, from my viewpoint, although I don't know the inside stories, I think they both screwed up in their military service <laughs> so you have all of this stuff going on and it, that happened to be one of the many acrimonious elections recently in the last 30 years because i never ran into anybody who was voting for one almost everybody i ran into in boston and atlanta and cleveland in places in new york where i was hanging out or working were voting against the other person why Psychologically, I think it's this idiosyncrasy credit. So you see something in one person, which you like, and you forgive them their other things, you look at the person you don't have this emotional disposition for, and you're disgusted by the very same thing you're forgiving over here. So part of the dilemma that we have is people have these strong emotional reactions, and at some point in the last few years, people started using a term from psychology called confirmation bias. It's, it's a little bit of the same thing. Right. Um, but the dilemma is the only way we can go ahead is if we break those patterns.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So and I'm going, to swing back, in. I'm going to swing sure. back in. So one of the things that keeps coming up, and people are asking me and my colleagues, What's the difference between equity and equality? And, you know, I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And I kept giving definitions of it. And, and suddenly I realized that it's personal based. In what sense? In the sense that can you say one is more important than the other in the D and I space? Or one means more to an individual? And I think when people define the difference between the two, that definition is based upon your personal experience. Right. And I, I'll right. give you an example. The cartoon that came out with the three little boys trying to look over the fence to see a sports uh, team, um, that was defined as inequity because one was short and couldn't see through, one could barely see through and one saw through clearly. And so, when they raised the uh, benches so that they were uneven and all three could see over the bench, they said, well, people said to me, is that equity or is that equality, right? And my response to it was, here's how I look at it. Um, If I'm paid the same salary as somebody else, I'm gonna feel equal right for the same job but if i take that salary and i go to buy a house in a neighborhood where my colleague who is white bought a house who is making the same amount of money as me and i'm not allowed to buy a house in that neighborhood that's not that's not equity right i have the money yeah I allowed to so is that equality or is that
1: equity which is yeah i i i think the uh i I agree with you cb i think the distinction between these words um are have more to do with the eye of the beholder and what you're interpreting it as Uh, one of the reasons i like the current trend which is to talk about diversity uh equity and inclusion the three uh, together.
0: Uh, Richard, your camera may go off because you went out of focus for some reason. Oh. So I'm not hmm. sure if that's your bandwidth. Um, I think you're coming back in a little okay. bit. Okay.
1: Well, what I was saying is I was very excited when people in this area started referring to it as not diversity or gender studies or race studies, but diversity, equity, and inclusion because okay. Each of these three things are very important, but which is important varies according to the people involved in the situation. Yeah. So it's not just to have diversity. I mean, Diana Bellamoria, a senior colleague of mine in my department and our department chair, did her PhD thesis at Michigan before she joined our faculty at Case on women in boards of of fortune 1000 companies and she oh, was the first to show know. no well listen, she was the first to show in 1989 that the number of women on a board is not a signal of equality of gender because you have to look at which committees they serve on yes and she was showing that regardless of how many women were on the board they tended not to be on the finance committee or the strategic committee you know they were on some of the other committees so it raises the issue um, that, yes, diversity in terms of having different points of view and diversity of uh, race and gender, ethnicity, of social class, all these things are really important. But when you ask the question a slightly different way or go at it a different way, um, why are you doing it? Well, you want people to feel included. You want people to feel invited. And you don't want people to feel that they're shut out. I mean, it's one of the reasons why, you know, the current uh, kind of brouhaha going on with the cancel culture and the, um, excuse me, but from a perspective of looking at the media, the sheer hypocrisy of all forms of media to think that there's anybody who's balanced is crazy. I mean, at least in Europe, everybody knows which uh, broadcast stations and which newspapers are biased along the you know, conservative to liberal, extreme conservative, extreme liberal program. We haven't gotten used to that in this country yet, but they all are.
0: You know, I have to break in because it reminds me of my days at the New School to Social Research. Yeah, that's right. Where one of my assignments was take the same subject from three different same headlines from three different newspapers and write how each one is influencing the reader. And those were the days of Marsha McCullen, of course. You know, right, right. so I'm sorry I had to interrupt. No, you. no,
1: that's that, but that's exactly the point. So, so part of the oomph uh, behind inclusiveness is that's what you're trying to do. You're not just trying to say we want to have percentage proportional representation and composition. We want people to be involved and included, and we want and we don't want people to feel excluded which means their voice is somehow silenced. At other times, we're really focusing on the issue of what's fair and what's equal opportunity. I think the equity issue for many of us, um, not all of all people, but for many of us, comes down to real equal opportunity, not phony equal opportunity, but real equal opportunity. That's a little bit different than equal benefit. I'm not sure, I mean, I, I think to really work on equal opportunity means you have to bypass and overcome an awful lot of historical biases that you as an individual have, the people you're interacting with have, the city or community you're in has. Um, so the issue of creating that kind of, uh, I would call equity, which is equality. Um, so my sense is, I agree with you about differences between equity and equality, but I think the diversity, equity, and inclusion are three different parts of the same thing. And that's why I'm I'm excited that people are talking about it that way, because I think it also invites the addressing of it for more than just one violation, like looking at sexism or racism, but looking at all of these, so things let's that be we do.
0: clear, you're not saying the diversity, equity, and quality are the same thing. You're saying it's part of the same,
1: uh, yes. uh, globe that's that right. We need to yes. Put
0: together. So yes,
1: yeah. yeah, there, there are different parts of it. And yeah. I would say in any given moment, d- they may be differentially crucial, you know, in terms of which one you need to work on the most, but all of them are really important because they represent different parts of this whole larger whole which, you know, given last week's celebrations of the Reverend Martin Luther King, uh, you know, I mean, as a person who transcended a lot of differences, as somebody who remained committed to nonviolent change that didn't shirk from standing up for or going to jail for uh, change needed, he was one of the few people who were cons- was, has been, had been consistently standing for a position where everybody came together. I mean, mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons why decades and decades later, people still feel a response to the I have a dream speech because it was one or another, all together. Mm-hmm. By, by the way, I, I was um, in The Shield book about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and uh, looking at different parts of it. And uh, one of the things that struck me, um, because back in the late 60s, I was in Boston and Malcolm X was very active still here, as was uh, Elijah Muhammad. Um, One of the things that was very interesting is that Martin Luther King didn't authorize or allow any... Uh, protests in at night, hmm. and he stayed away from them. And I, I think it's a part of his, his great insight into the fact that, you know, when it gets dark, sometimes people's demons come out.
0: Yeah, well, you know that expression is nothing good happens after midnight. You know, be careful. Um, but, but, but anyway,
1: but, but this idea of um, the real purpose that we're after mm-hmm. is to have every human be treated with the respect that a human deserves and be given a chance and to be heard.
0: So I want to ask you, we we only have a few minutes left, unfortunately, but I am absolutely going to ask you to come back home. <laughs> OK. I want to listen to I'd you love the- to. Recording. Take notes and uh, and and quiz you on some other things. Um, okay, so we've established that the first step in and putting together a DNI program is to develop a program so that people can respect the true north of others and to share learning. What is the second step?
1: Well. I think the first step. I, I would pro, I would phrase it a little differently. I would say the first step is to create a sense of purpose or vision for the big for the big picture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this is not goals because it turns out goals works the other way. Works the other way. So um, and you know an example that we were just talking about. If somebody pushes metrics and goals, they're going to start to argue. Well, yeah, we've achieved this because you know. of the population of America is African-American and we have 18% of the people in this group, you know, are African-American. That's what happens when you start using metrics first, you reduce the possibilities. So I think the first step is to create some shared vision, which can also be shared sense of purpose. Now that can create the context for the other activities. The dilemma we have is in some settings, the obstacles may be so severe that you have to do your step first to get to this other one, which is you have to teach people to listen. Mm -hmm. I mean, so a simple thing like listening ends up being complicated because are you listening to the person or are you listening to your voice? I mean, we called one of our chapters in our our, uh, recent book, Focus on Others, because when you're trying to help someone, the question is, are you trying to help them or are you trying to express yourself? And when we're in a helping role, manager, parent, coach, we should be concerned about the other person. So I think that that's where these sound simple, but are very sophisticated listening skills might actually come first then the shared vision,
0: would, would then, you, Wait, would, would you say, hold that, would you say that part of the listening skills is understanding your own bias, or is oh, that- Oh yeah,
1: definitely, oh, okay. absolutely. Right. No, because I mean, when I was going through training as a psychotherapist, because I did a lot of psychotherapy in the 70s with alcoholics and drug addicts, one of the first things you learn is to operationalize all the ego defense mechanisms. So we need projection to start a conversation with somebody. But at a critical point, projection closes you off to who the other person is. And what you're doing is seeing a reflection of yourself, not who they are.
0: Okay, so we've got teaching people to listen, shared vision, what's next?
1: Then we find from the research, the next immediate step is building relationships where you have a a real feeling of caring for each other
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so if somebody says to me is caring for each other more important than respecting each other i don't know i'm I'm not sure that's a fair exchange but i'd go for caring (laughs) why because i think caring um is deeper i know people who can say well i respect this person because of this issue, but I really don't like them. And and that's not gonna help. Um,
0: In a a workplace environment, is respecting enough? Do you really need to care? Yes,
1: yes. No, that's that's a part of my point, C.B., is that we compartmentalize these things. And I know of a lot of people think, well, respect is the key. I don't need to be loved. I need to just be respected. Bull, if somebody is going to really work with you over time then they need to know that they you care about them and they care about you it's it's more and it's even more than empathy it's even more than understanding it has to be an active thing so
0: professor you have to listen to my tuesday program with morang who talks about this exact thing but go ahead oh great yeah, it was this past Tuesday.
1: Ah, okay, I'll look it up. Okay. So I think I think once you have a shared sense of purpose or vision and you have um, um, a reasonable basis to me for a caring, mutual caring relationship, a lot of things are possible because then you're able to bring the person periodically back into what I call this positive emotional attractor space. So you can be in a conversation and you could get to hot issues you can get to issues that make you each angry but you can somehow pull yourselves back the problem that we often as if have if you don't have those things you're going down the uh the whirlpool of negativity
0: yeah it's much easier to discuss something that's negative if you're in a caring relationship it's that's like right. saying to your spouse okay, I think you need to go brush your teeth, because you know, I mean, I am oversimplifying it, of course, Right, but you know, it doesn't, it's very different than saying that to a stranger, oh, you have bad breath, right?
1: Yeah, Uh, or or to stay within the spouse or partner analogy, if you're in a heated argument, that's not the moment to say to your partner, calm down. Yeah,
0: (laughs) especially the woman.
1: You know what you need to do is agree, hug them, um, you know, whatever. But but that that's the, you're right. That's exactly the point. Is that um, the question ends up? Be, I think the reason we're finding all this hormonal and neurological evidence, and and are seeing the behavioral changes that result, is because this foundation is a different foundation. It's different than saying you have shared goals. It's deeper. You have a shared purpose. And it's different than saying you have a working relationship. It's different. You care about each other, Mm -hmm. which means you're human. You're not just human resources.
0: Okay, Richard, I have to stop you because we're at 1201. But um, (laughs) I just want to read a couple of points here. Jordan says, doesn't work for men either. Uh, Moreg, Moreg is listening in. She said, thanks for the shout out CB. I was listening and saying yes to everything Richard is saying. Caring is key. I know we had people on the, who are listening in. you have to go to YouTube or you know connect with me and listen to Moreg's interview that took place this past Tuesday. It was exactly on point with what Richard is saying. Um, Grace says on this starting point being listening, that's why in Wells Fargo, one of our foundational DNI courses is just about having a conversation about difference, self, safe self disclosure first. But you know, I'm not sure, Grace. I hate to say this. This goes all the way up to the CEO because of what happened a few months ago. Um, Jordan heard it was great. He's talking about the Tuesday event. Jordan, wow, what a PowerPoint, Um, and hold on one second, what a PowerPoint, the idea that whomever is in power represses diversity regardless of their ethnic racial background. I hope I have that correctly. Yes, I think you did. Uh, Julie, relationships matter most, say it louder for the people in the back. (laughs) I love Julie's sense of humor. (laughs) um jordan compassion recognizing that someone is in pain or suffering and having an impulse or intention to alleviate that suffering if possible and appropriate as opposed to sympathy um and just lots of agreement with our earlier part of the conversation um and dr hannah says richard thank you for highlighting the importance of building the listening skills i agree There is a difference between hearing and active listening. Listening allows us to become aware and take actions accordingly. Such great feedback. I love it. I love when you all write in Um, Richard, we're uh, three minutes past the hour and I I just don't even want this conversation to end. It's
1: fun. It's been fun.
0: I thought you were going to be a starchy old professor. (laughs) (laughs) Instead. You're a young, fun, brilliant guy. Thank
1: you. I don't think it's because I had a glass of wine with lunch. I don't. I really don't. <laughs> but, so if people like any of these ideas, uh, the recent book with Melvin Smith and Ellen Van Osten is Helping People Change, Harvard Business Review. And we have a MOOC through Coursera that people can take. Um, and we also... Wait, what's the MOOC called? Uh, the MOOC is called Conversations That Inspire. Okay. And the, again, the three of us did it. And then the three of us have an app coming out this spring called Helping People Change. That's a number of quick things people can do every day, uh, 28 days' worth of them, based on the book. So um, will
0: you come back on when the app is released?
1: Oh, I'd love to, yeah. And or so- have Melvin or Ellen. They're all, uh, they they put all me of- to shame with their power.
0: How about having all of you?
1: oh that that would be good if you could schedule that that's a little hard
0: and when is it coming out so we can look at the time frame
1: the app it, yeah. they claimed it would be somewhere in the spring
0: in they the don't spring.
1: have an exact date
0: okay. the MOOC
1: spent the MOOC's out we uh launched the MOOC uh, I don't know, th- four years ago or something and the book just came out a year ago or so
0: okay well we have to run i know people will say CB you're running way over time Listen, everybody, um, what is MOOC? I'll talk to you about that. That's an online uh, university that's free that people could go to. Um, Listen, everyone, I am so glad you tuned in today for an amazing conversation with Dr. Boyazi, and um, we want to have him back. Thank you for coming to CB Bowman Live on Thursday, Workplace Equity and equality. And we'll see you next week. And listen, tune in to Tuesdays where we do CB Bowman Live, Challenges of the C Suite. Richard, thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you, It's spelled MOOC, M O O C. Thanks, Grace. Um, and stay safe, you all. Bye now.
1: Oh, bye bye.